0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. In this podcast we feature the second full-length lecture in our series The Elite, Old and New. The talk is entitled The Stonewall Phenomenon, Takeover of the Institutions. From arguments in museums about the status of colonial era collections to the proliferation of ever more expansive diversity and inclusion policies within public service organisations, major institutions are at the forefront of the culture wars. So what can controversies such as Stonewall's involvement at the BBC and the new elite activism of organisations such as the National Trust and the Civil Service tell us about the changing face of major institutions and how power operates today? The lecturer is Claire Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas and an independent peer in the House of Lords.
1: By now, Um, Most of us in the UK are fairly familiar with the shadowy workings of Stonewall and how its influence has grown across a huge range of organisations. Stonewall, an LGBTQ plus and a lot more organisation, has boasted of 900 members to its Diversity Champions programme. And despite the fact that the Equalities Minister Liz Truss advised government departments to leave Stonewall, Uh, Stonewall run schemes and there's weekly news of major institutions cutting their ties, hundreds still remain involved. Most notably and recently the BBC left Stonewall after the shocking revelations by the Stephen Nolan podcasts. That was brilliant journalism and done by a BBC journalist but why it took so long is it's self-evidence that Stonewall has actually shaped editorial decisions at the BBC chilling any criticism of the gender orthodoxy it preaches. Even if, and it's a big if, things are unraveling, still the question remains, why did organisations sign up to Stonewall and what does it tell us about the elite today? The Taxpayers Alliance estimate that over the past three years, Stonewall received 3.1 million pounds of taxpayers' money from 327 public sector organisations, In addition, there was uh, uh, £702,000 from government grants, and that's nothing on how much money they've received from the private sector. I first came across the influence of Stonewall in the unlikely circumstances of a report done by the fire service and about the fire service. Uh, uh, It was preaching a reorganisation of the working practices for people who work in the fire service, and it was about instituting unconscious bias training and demonising informal banter amongst uh, people who worked in the fire service. And I wondered at the time, why was Stonewall the main advisors to the report? But actually, now I know. Technically, we understand what happened. Employers keen to show that they they were uh, signing up to a new set of values of diversity and equality were queuing up to be given diversity champion badges to parade on their websites. They then paid fees to have their policies vetted, In order to move up the Workplace Equality Index, a very clever device, organisations are rated on that by how closely they meet Stonewall's definition of inclusion. Organisations agree to training and mentoring schemes and changes in work practices to prove their commitment to diversity. And I think we can all imagine the scenario. There you have... Uh, Human Relations, HR and Public Affairs uh, Committee having a meeting. And they actually report that our organization is ranked 152 by Stonewall, whereas our competitors are 130 and 85 respectively. And everyone sits around going, oh, what on earth do we do? We have to be seen to move up the rankings. And so chief execs and senior management say, do whatever it takes. And as a consequence, an organization suddenly has a pronoun initiative or an allyship scheme or they launch an advertising drive. And sure enough, they move from 152 to 135, and they want to get higher up again, and so the changes continue. But it still beggars belief in some ways that such a range of organisations signed up to allow their working practices to be moulded by a partisan lobbying organisation that espouses the radical proposition of gender self-identification, irrespective of biological sex. And they did that without questioning it. Think about who signed up for this. And this really has come to light mainly because as an organization, they've been publicly canceling their involvement after uh, work by people like Sex Matters revealed the uh, Stonewall's involvement. So we had Ofsted signed up, which inspects the country's schools. We had the Equality and Human Rights Commission sign up. I mean, why did they feel the need to prove their equality credentials when they're the Equality Commission? We had the Ministry of Justice. We had Ofcom, the media regulator. We had the Ministry of Defence reportedly spending 50,000 pounds on membership for the Royal Navy, Army and Air Force. We had the cash strapped NHS, who have supposedly spent half a million pounds over the last three years with their uh, Stonewall involvement. And the House of Commons itself is a member of Stonewall. One reason this happened is that Stonewall is a brand that is credible. It, is a ra- it has a rainbow shield. And a reputation as righteous warriors in the historic battles for equality. And they were indeed, Stonewall, engaged at the forefront of huge gains for lesbians and gays. Their credibility means that even some of Stonewall's founders didn't object when the chief executive of Stonewall at the time, Ruth Hunt, added the word, the letter T, to LGB, even though that was only based on consultation with 700 members of the trans community and a large donation. Why did the Tories go along with all this? I think that, again, it's that stonewall credibility that they embraced. The Tories, after all, were trying to prove that they were no longer the nasty party. Section 28 still haunts them. They were seen to be anti-gay and lesbian. They actually are so keen to change their image, or have been, uh, um, that they, under a conservative government, It was uh, the Tories that proposed to amend the Gender Recognition Act to allow people to officially change gender simply by declaration, as promised by uh, then Prime Minister Theresa May. For the Labour Party, Corbyn assumed that trans rights must be a good idea, a continuum of gay rights. And both parties were just utterly oblivious to any pitfalls. I remember having a discussion with one of Corbyn's advisors And I pointed out that feminists were very worried about the erasure of women. And they told me that those feminists were older and outdated, and it was important that the Labour Party modernized. Both sides, in other words, were completely clueless. The decision to back Stonewall and to endorse Stonewall to allow Stonewall to take so many influential positions was based only on a fleeting understanding of the issue. It was almost nodded through. It was never about the interests of trans people at the very top. And that tells us something about the political class, a certain indifference to the substance of any particular issue, happy to indulge box ticking wokery and a political gesture that's completely shallow and also dependent on advisors, weak on their own political instincts, asking people who were often involved in Stonewall whether Stonewall was a good idea. And the main thing I think about the political parties is that it indicates that they have few connections with the real world beyond a public that's presented to them via the prism of NGOs, lobby groups, and particular stakeholders, always partisan groups. They had no sense that there might be a public beyond this group of public-facing stakeholder groups. Really, the issue of the implication of Stonewall's influence Uh, was not uncovered until feminists realised, when looking at the implications of the legal changes to self-ID, that Stonewall had been busy behind the scenes and were affecting policy in ways they didn't understand. Many institutions were failing to collect data on sex, for example, because they'd muddled them up with gender. Feminists realised that women's spaces had already been repurposed and rebranded as all gender spaces, and any challenge to such policies or concerns about sex-based race, uh, rights or the erasure of women were themselves dubbed against diversity policies as dictated by Stonewall. And so the debate was closed down before it began. People were accused of transphobia. Now a familiar pattern we're all uh, 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 know about. And you can seriously say that Stonewall sp- uh, spawned cancel culture. A lot of this has happened without scrutiny. Recently, it was revealed that the Foreign Office were paid to join Stonewall's diversity scheme only in July this year without ministerial approval. And I'll be returning to this newly politicised civil service who now acts independently of ministers. Uh, uh, I'll be talking about that later. But the truth is that ministers themselves of the government are completely, have been, proved themselves completely clueless. When a ministerial maternity bill was introduced into the House of Lords, it was assumed that it was a straightforward, worthy bill for equality. And the minister that was leading on it actually told me that he thought it would be really good to be associated with something, associated with women's rights. And he didn't dawn on him when he read the legislation, there was no mention of the word woman or mother at all in the law. But those who drafted the law very consciously excluded those words. This was not drawn attention to very much a stonewall technique to set legal precedent under the radar. This is not about winning hearts and minds, but winning influence on committees and creating laws and policy uh, without almost anyone noticing. This corruption of lawmaking is of huge concern. The DCMS, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport recently announced that they would no longer accept Stonewall's legal advice. And you have to then pause and think that this is quite a revelation. What they're actually saying is is that those who make the law, i.e. the DCMS, were paying a lobby group to provide help with interpreting the laws that they make. One of the reasons why Stonewall has been able to become so influential behind the backs of public oversight, yet hiding in plain sight, is that it's been quietly influencing, indeed training and socialising influential members of a new elite with major consequences for policy. Take Dame Melanie Dawes, who runs the media watchdog Ofcom, Ofcom, the hugely powerful uh, uh, organization that determines what and who we watch uh, uh, and whom broadcasters fear. At a DCMS committee meeting recently, Dame Melanie reassured the MP John uh, Nicholson he was making a case for halting the rising transphobia by denying certain opinions the oxygen of publicity. Dame Melanie stressed, that she had personal contact with Stonewall and would ensure that broadcasters could, quote, steer their way through the debates without causing offence and without bringing inappropriate voices to the table. For inappropriate voices read gender critical. And no surprise that until the last couple of weeks, the LGB Alliance, the gender critical organisation, couldn't get any airplay and have been dubbed a hate crime, a, a hate group, and inappropriate. So who is Dame Melanie Dawes? She came through the civil service, one of the cohort who reached seniority when David Cameron gave himself the final say on the recruitment process. One of the kind of new people in politics, a new breed. She's been permanent secretary at the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government that signed up to Stonewall. And between 2015 and 2019 was a gender champion and a judge at the 2015 Civil Service Diversity and Inclusion Awards. So as so often, we see a whole infrastructure of awards, champion schemes and training designed to create a new layer of leaders. And with the industry of consultants and trainers and external advisors themselves emerging as a new elite with the power to shape who is in charge and their views, I think we can see we have a problem. And if you read the article in the papers today by Nikki DeCosta, herself, a government advisor in the past, she actually says, that Boris Johnson's present advisors have all been stonewalled. With the spotlight on Stonewall, it's easy to imagine that this particular organization that has cleverly inveigled itself into such powerful positions is an exceptional organization. However, while its particular success might indeed indicate some skill, this mode of influence is not uh, alone. The BBC may have dumped Stonewall But if you listen to the BBC nation's director on Women's Hour, Rodri Tarford Davis, he still was reluctant to accept that biological sex is a fact. And also the BBC might have dumped Stonewall, but they've been keen to assure us that they're pleased to announce, quote, that we will be in partnership with Involve UK. Involve UK, guess what? Support Self-ID and its CEO, Suki Sandu, only last week Uh, retweeted a Gay Times article condemning the LGB Alliance as toxic. So I think that we can ask the question, why is it the BBC needs to have these advisors? But I don't also think this is just about the transgender issue. On any identity topic, institutions can develop uh, uh, that don't seem to be able to develop their own policy and bring in uh, consultants and experts. The campaign group Don't Divide Us has done an excellent expose of how an organisation called Advance HG is embedding the Race Equality Charter into universities as we speak. It charges a fee to provide advice and training to audit universities' anti-racism strategies. It awards bronze and silver certificates to those who score well. Does that all sound familiar? It's Stonewall's influence on form at least. And what's more is just as Stonewall's influence institutionalized gender recognition into the ide- as an ideology into the fiber of organizations. The race equality charter makes critical race theory more than just a theoretical framework to understand race that one might support. But it makes it the one and only approach given with institutional backing, which means that any academics or indeed students who challenge it end up being at odds with their university employers or with their academic supervisors. I remember a story when I started working with a corporate, which might illustrate how this happens. A major corporate was rather cynical about sustainability in Greens, but felt under pressure to employ someone and do something about it. So it started a greenwashing exercise. It employed an activist from Greenpeace and made it the sustainability director. That sustainability director then demanded that he be given a team of staff. The next minute that team of staff became a departmental a a major department in the organization and started to demand that it train staff from other departments in the same corporate. Then it started training the board of directors of the same corporate and asked and demanded that it select non-execs and started to say that it should be involved in staff recruitment. This change of personnel and culture happened almost by accident with the chief executive who demanded that they employ the Greenpeace board in first place actually frightened to ever challenge and in case anybody to accuse them of greenwashing, even though that's where we started. And it ended up that the director of sustainability's original recruiters became helpless and isolated. And as I say, dare not challenge. And here we see the emergence now of new activist elites who have the real power, even in the most powerful organisations. They might have been seen as a thorn in the side uh, of those organisations, but they end up calling the shots. Now, there's a danger here, I'm aware, of me seeming to be saying that this is simply a matter of changing personnel, of replacing these activist elites and all will be well. Indeed, it's a popular idea that if institutions that have been captured by a small unrepresentative group or a handful of entryists simply swap them for a more favorable group of people, everything will sort itself out. There is some truth in the scenario about personnel. When Tony Blair was elected, Labour were indeed keen to break with the traditional old Tory boys' network. They explicitly recruited people to sit on public bodies and trusts and so on. They used a sympathetic law firm uh, to do headhunting brokerage to get their people in place, uh, placement. They pushed a new model of an anti-elite elite. whose mission uh, was from powerful positions to create anti-elitist champions. I remember going to a 21st birthday party of two Blair advisors. I'd been doing some networking uh, very early on in the uh, Blair years and was very pleased that I knew people across the board. I knew people in the media. I knew people in uh, different corporates. I knew people in business. I knew people in the museums and art world. And I thought I'd built up my own personal uh, network of people. I went to this birthday party and they were all there and they all knew each other and I discovered there was already a network and what had happened was I'd stumbled upon it because they were all Oxbridge uh, anti-elitist part of the new Blairite elite and they already existed. So the Tories get into power and recently they decided to do a reverse ferret and replace these liberal culture warriors with new personnel. When he was at the DCMS Oliver Dowden went about vetting appointments to museums and art galleries We've seen the cack handed way that they've tried to get Paul Dacre in as the head of Ofcom, unsuccessfully, it seems. And of course, it has made some difference if you change the personnel. No doubt, Kishwa Faulkner, a former Lib Dem peer, very independent minded, not an adherent of identity politics, has made a difference as the new chair of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. But it's a much deeper problem than individuals. In fact, there's a broader cultural shift. And so no matter who heads up the EHRC, we discovered that the staff of that organisation do not share the outlook of the new leader and uh, the embedded views of the staff, often generational or indeed identitarian, whether Kishwa Faulkner likes it or not. We've seen some of that generational shift with um, what's happening at Netflix, with the young staff attempting to censor um, uh, content, same at Spotify and throughout publishing as well. So bad that the CEO of Hatchet Book Group Uh, had to actually tell uh, the House of Lords committee that new publishers now have to warn new recruits that they may have to work on books that uh, are written by people they don't agree with. In other words, they perceive that it's the young people who are causing the problem. And no doubt, it is true that those norms are being embedded by young people. But I think, uh, however, that uh, it's more complicated than that. And regardless of age, there definitely is a new elite emerging. And I want to look at a number of trends by firstly looking at the shenanigans at the National Trust and secondly by uh, some tentative observations about the modern civil service. Events at the National Trust over recent years have been very much the talk of our times. In In recent decades the focus of the culture war might have been universities but I think there's been, it's been complacent if that people think it stayed there. And I think if we look at an organisation as stayed a state conservative as the National Trust to see how they become embroiled in, in the culture wars, it does tell us something. The National Trust was founded in 1895 and its founding purpose as a body was for the holding of lands of natural beauty and sites and houses of historic interest to be preserved for the nation's use and enjoyment. This purpose purpose, as a conservation organisation has enabled it to become the owner of more than 600,000 acres of land and 200 historic homes, and it has nearly 6 million members. Various acts of parliament since 1907 has propelled the trust beyond charitable status to act on behalf of the nation. And we associate it with stately homes and beautiful gardens and cream teas. And it was set up on the high Victorian uh, reformers ideals of giving a gift to the working class of fresh air. Now, however, it's in the middle of a civil war. In September 2020, it published an interim report on the connections between colonialism and properties now in the care of the National Trust, including links with historic uh, slavery. And as a consequence, there've been a range of rows um, that have involved what can only be described as stock characters and the culture wars. First of all, we had the common sense group of MPs and peers traditionalists of a type, he wrote a letter complaining to the national that the national trust leadership had been captured by quote elitist bourgeois liberals coloured by cultural Marxist dogma colloquially known as the woke agenda. Inevitably, the Guardian characterised that very uh, description as using quote the language of the alt right, saying that the use of the word cultural Marxism proved that they were uh, anti-Semitic and conspiratorial. Charles Moore has argued in The Telegraph and The Spectator that the National Trust has been rolled over by extremists. But in response, the group that has been set up called Restore Trust that actually hopes to counter uh, the woke takeover, that 6,000 uh, previous members of the National uh, Trust, has itself been characterised as extremist and right-wing and does indeed include people like religious fundamentalist Stephen Green, the leader of Ch- uh, Christian Concern, and Neil Record, a Tory down- uh, donor, who funded um, the so-called Climate Denier Group, Global Warming Foundation and Net Zero Watch. I personally have got some sympathy with the concerns raised by Restore Trust, but they are, to be frank, a caricature of themselves. But there has definitely been a grassroots rebellion and it's caused a stir. Nezri Malik uh, suggests that uh, Restore Trust, Nezri Malik is a Guardian journalist, is promoting misinformation suggesting the culture of these islands is being stolen from, she says, the implicitly white uh, native and straight majority. And she says that's what Restored Trust is all about. She says they don't like demographic change, that this is basically uh, an attack on the uh, cosmopolitan liberal elite by people who don't like uh, uh, multiculturalism. But the somewhat hysterical polemics on both sides of this argument just don't help us. And even though the phrase liberal elite is a cliche, it does exist at some level, and I just want to look a little bit at the kind of elite uh, way uh, that the National Trust has been run. Because when, when, no matter what way you look at it, the National Trust has changed its purpose, even if uh, some people might listening might be sympathetic to that change. If once the National Trust's purpose was to preserve historically significant houses and gardens for the general public, its declared strategy for two, two, 2025 is, in its own words, that our 21st century ambition is to meet the needs of an environment under pressure and the challenge and expectations of a fast-moving world. And underpinning this is our renewed commitment to diversity, inclusion, and playing our part to create a fair, equal society, free from discrimination. And if I can quote Greta Thunberg, maybe I could say blah, blah, blah. Mid-COVID, the Trust unveiled its 10-year vision for places and experience, which proposes a revolution to do away with the outdated mansion experience, which apparently only appeals to a niche audience, uh, despite the fact that there's no evidence that suggests there's anything like declining audiences. They want to repurpose their properties and they're no longer about preserving and presenting uh, British country houses as a distinctive part of our national heritage, but instead they want to develop these as a public space in service of local audiences moving antiques and uh, uh, furniture, taking them away from display where needed to make the spaces more flexible and accessible and inclusive. That's according to Tony Berry, the Trust Visitor Experience Director. And wherever one stands on the National Trust route, it's pretty clear listening to these uh, priorities and reading the identikit jargon associated uh, with uh, these causes that all its strategy Uh, in all its strategy documents, that they're interchangeable with any range of organizations and institutions. This is not a staff team you'd normally associate with working with heritage. There seems to be an explicit aversion to tradition and custom. There seems to be a passive aggressive hostility to conventional views of British history. The colonialism and slavery report involves no professional historians, let alone experts on colonial or slave uh, trade history. The one academic named as author is Corrine Foster, Professor of Post-Colonial Literature at the University of Leicester. She's noted as the author of Green Unpleasant Land, as one commentator notes, if the land is so unpleasant, why would the National Trust wish to care for it, or the members who want to visit it? Professor Foster's previous project for the National Trust in 2018 was entitled Colonial Countryside, and the National Trust houses uh, were reinterpreted, this wasn't history, though, it was child led history and involved 110 year olds responding with creative writing after visiting 11 properties with a colonial connection. So, what of the leadership of the National Trust while all this is going on? To note, in the past, chairs of the National Trust would usually have been well healed, involved in properties in their care you know, the landowners, the donors, the connoisseurs of buildings uh, and of visual culture. I know quite a lot about them because a lot of them are in the House of Lords. And however distasteful we might find them, they were passionately involved uh, uh, in in how uh, uh, the uh, country houses might be run. Under, however, the Blairite Cameron, uh, Cameron revolutions, the leadership became very modernized. If you want, they became more woke, more indifferent even. The recent chair, Tim Parker, who's just resigned, has a background as a Labour Party in Labour Party politics at university. He was involved with Boris at the LGA, briefly made a fortune in the worlds of business. And his specialism was turnaround and sacking uh, people. And at the same time that he's been chair of the National Trust, he's also chair of the post office while it was persecuting innocent postmasters uh, wrongfully for fraud, a huge scandal. And I think there's a similar negligence and a looking away at scandal that's been true of his uh, leadership of the National Trust. Despite Parker being identified by Restore Trust in the media as a woke enemy, in truth, he wasn't any such thing. And even Charles Moore has conceded that actually his crime was not as an ideologue, but rather notably for his absence of leadership, that he allowed ideologues to accrue power under him. He was indeed a managerial technocrat, with no particular commitment to the National Trust or heritage. This is one feature I'd say of the new elite, described by one commentator rather charitably as uncultured, complacent, ignorant, bureaucratic members of the establishment, a tired, faded who's who of bland establishment figures with no specifically relevant qualifications or expertise, nicely described I think as quote copy and paste civil service aristocracy who now run all the institutions identically. And this is ultimately the technocratic approach of the elite rule. And I think it stores up real problems. And I think that becomes obvious when we look at the real civil service. But as a way of making a bridge between the National Trust and moving on to that civil service, I want to consider one other person involved in the National Trust. That's Helen Ghosh, who was Director General of the National Trust from 2012 to 2018. She had previously been a permanent secretary at the Home Office, and before that was at DEFRA. And I think you'll find that a lot of those heading up our cultural institutions these days have come from senior positions in the civil service. And this in and of itself is a shift. The civil service used to be a lifelong career, but now it's become a training ground for elite roles elsewhere. So now let me consider the civil service. It's supposed to be politically impartial. It has a professional code that binds civil servants to advise ministers and execute uh, policies without letting their personal political uh, opinions intrude. We know from classic uh, comedy series, Yes Minister, that often senior civil servants viewed their ministers as hapless and gormless. They were wily, however, and they influenced uh, those ministers to get their own way, but that was less political and more pragmatic and practical. Today's situation is very different. Senior civil servants formerly follow impartiality in terms of party politics, but they have entirely abandoned it with regards to identity politics. This became open and obvious in response to the Black Lives Matter moment following the murder of George Floyd, but it had been happening for several years before it, if you remember all those Stonewall sign-ups I talked about earlier. A quick whiz through some examples. Politically neutral civil servants, senior civil servants, used their publicly funded offices to express their political opinions on a highly contentious topical issue openly in relation to Black Lives Matters. They used work emails, the internet and social media accounts to express opinions at those they line managed, all of this in public view and without contradiction or sanction from their ministerial elected bosses. In June 2020, Jonathan Slater, the Permanent Secretary of the uh, Department of Education, responded to the DEFRA Permanent Secretary Tamara Finkelstein's call to fight racism by tweeting the hashtag BLM and declaring his quest to, quote, tackle the whiteness of senior Whitehall. The Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Defence, Stephen Lovegrove, emailed his subordinates to inform them of, of the systemic uh, uh, racial inequality that exist, had deep roots within UK society, including at the Ministry of Defence. DEFRA's internal mailing lists were, sent, uh, were used to send lists of practical ways to support Black Lives Matters, including email templates and petitions for, would you believe, lobbying MPs demanding action to take on government policy and change it from being systemic racism around immigration policies and law and order. In other words, staff at the DfE, staff were told to lobby MPs as staff as civil servants. Staff at the Department of Education were told by um, senior mandarins to educate themselves about concepts such as white privilege, racial profiling, intersectionality, microaggressions and whitewashing, and dissent was not allowed. And that lack of dissent from the top to staff is important. When the Minister of Defence Permanent Secretary Stephen Lovegrove hosted an all staff call, call, um, Zoom call on race and discrimination, some staff anonymously posted critical remarks in the chat. Lovegrove not only described the remarks as harmful, deeply offensive and discriminatory, but also said that those who commented had no place in the MOD and vowed to investigate the identity of the anonymous commentators. This threat of professional repercussions if staff didn't uh, conform, hints at how deeply committed senior civil servants are to a particular set of identitarian values, rather than it just being simply an emotional reaction to George Floyd's death. And I'd say it goes beyond virtue signaling. The civil servant's support for Black Lives Matters is not just a temporary reaction to an emotional highly charged atmosphere of last uh, uh, summer's uh, uprising. I think it's become a more deeply internalized into civil service and indicates a change. Long before um, um, uh, Black Lives Matters moment last summer and what's been revealed since then is a whole intricate system of official networks, projects and training that has institutionalized uh, CR- uh, critical race theory throughout the civil service. We've discovered that unconscious bias training is widespread amongst all government party uh, departments since 2015. It happened on the watch of Tory ministers and was actually often encouraged by them. We also saw Jeremy Hunt enthusiastically uh, endorsing Project Race uh, um, in, in 2018. As um, described by Justin Edelman in The Critic, Project Race, its leaders Rob Neal, the chair of the Civil Service Race Forum, and David Bartlett, told a discussion in 2018 that they were inspired by an event for senior civil servants in 2015 led by Goldsmith Academic Dr. Nicola Rollick, which was on microaggressions. And Dr. Nicola Rollick was, in fact, the controversial advisor to the documentary about testing unconscious biases in school uh, children, uh, which has in fact, been discredited since then. But um, they, as a consequence of being inspired, indicated projects to facilitate discussions about white privilege, white fragility, uh, with the aim of winning over hearts and minds for the top-down diversity inclusion directives by changing the culture of the civil service from the ground up. So they took the top down rules and tried to get the staff to agree to them. So senior civil servants embarked on a mission to convert staff. And it's important to note that this was not a revolt by younger staff against an old establishment. This was a new establishment developing new tools to discipline and control the workplace and employees. And one of its main tactics was to set up a network of race ambassadors trained up by consultants in their role to initiate and instigate healthy, quote, conversations about race with colleagues uh, of, and lower ranking staff, and to get these conversations happening to hold people to account. In 2018, there were 50 race ambassadors in the MOJ, and since then, it's re- uh, recruited on a rolling uh, across all government departments and is now being rolled out regionally across the UK. It seems to me that such race ambassadors and their trainers and senior civil servants are exactly the new elite set uh, set up as power brokers who have real clout. Rob Neill described uh, Project Race as intelligence on the ground and asked them to know anyone reluctant to talk uh, or or using phrases such as I'd rather not say, which was suggested as evidence of problematic hidden attitudes. Staying stubborn is not an option, as we know, because silence is violence. What we're witnessing here is the Mandarins in Whitehall defining the civil service through the highly contentious ideology of critical race theory. And that ideology is now so institutionalized through the root and branch of the civil service that it's an ideology that trumps any loyalty or commitment to service to ministers, the civil service ethos. Only a fortnight ago, the Home Office senior staff had to cancel a talk by Cambridge professor Priyamada Gopal after Guido Fawkes revealed the invitation and it led to a backlash. But of course, it begs the question, why Professor Gopal, a highly contentious CRT advocate, who's been accused of being toxic on Twitter and allegedly a race baiter, but more specifically, an academic who has a vicious uh, uh, criticism of civil servant's boss, the Home Secretary Priti Patel. Why did they invite her? Surely this was a willful act of ideological defiance. And I want to posit a thought here So this embrace of identity ideology, and I want to stress that this isn't necessarily around critical race theory because it could be gender identity as an ideology or it could be net zero sustainability as an ideology. All of these political ideologies are running rampant in a previously neutral civil service. And I want to wonder out loud why. It's not just personnel. I've got a couple of ideas uh, just to kind of uh, try and finish. The gap, I would say, has been one of the reasons is the gap left by an ideology like technocracy and a a rear guard anti-democratic response to populism. It seems to me that the glue that held an institution like the civil service together was a belief in the ethos of public service to a political system. They believed that was manned by politicians who believed in something. Civil servants weren't loyal to individual ministers so much, but they were loyal to ministers as a concept who had a sense of mission and principle. And that division of labor between the civil service and the political class has broken down. The British establishment has been complicit in weakening civil servants' sense of public duty. They've encouraged the replacement of the ethos of public duty with managerialism. They've been displaced by manager, manage. they themselves have been displaced by management consultants and key roles Uh, such as running prisons have been outsourced to the private sector. Politicians themselves have avoided political accountability by hiding behind the science, the evidence, international and transnational organizations and agreements. And all this has driven politics out of the formal political world. But as politics has been emptied out of politics, ideals and principles which can inspire um, uh, uh, have have disappeared. And that leaves institutions and individuals serving uh, Uh, involved in politics without a mission, without any meaning, without anything to inspire them. And that has two consequences. The collapse of the public service ethos and a reluctance of civil servants to return to work, which we've seen in relation to COVID, they no longer identify as public servants, but also a vacuum into which a purpose has emerged, even if self-generated by public servants themselves. Seriously, if if the National Trust was run by identical managers with no particular attachment to the specific brief of the organization, then senior staff fall back on fashionable causes to motivate and drive their institution. Surely this is what really threatens the civil service and civic organizations. There are now very few organizations that exist independently of the state, whose purposes are (coughs) non-political. Whether you're left or right, pro or anti-EU, You actually need to have some spaces that are not political. All that, um, when you want to go and look at art or enjoy music or wander around a grand house and imagine you're in a Jane Austen novel or that might be me, you don't want to think about politics all the time. The National Trust has over five and a half million members, more than all of the UK's political parties put together. But there's no toxic clash usually because what you want is a sense of social and civic solidarity about liking uh, nice gardens and grand houses. That's the purpose of the National Trust. Allowing that purpose to become discombobulated um, actually is is tearing the trust apart. But one problem I think with this, uh, the usually non-ideological, non-political sphere filling up with politics, is where can you go to escape political demands? I've got a lot of sympathy with Diana from Leicester who complained in terms of the National Trust that the majority of members just want to see beautiful houses and gardens, not have others' opinions pushed down their throats. But the National Trust policy doesn't approve of that. The colonialism and slavery report author, Professor Foster complains that country houses have become places where you go to switch uh, off, walk your dog or admire designed landscapes. And she took tuts at that and instead con- in, advocates confronting visitors with a history what, that, they, um, that they didn't learn at school, even if they feel threatened and alienated. So it seems to me that space is free from politics have also been places where you might um, have informal relations with your workplaces. In the context of working in a DCMS office or a university campus, you might wanna just gossip or banter with your workmates without feeling that your political opinions will be interrogated over the water cooler. But now you always have to be on guard. My other thought is that on what drives this emergence of a new ideologically driven elite is a disillusion with the democratic process as one way of resolving political disputes. One very clear issue that has, we have witnessed is that the civil service has abandoned any pretense of neutrality, and we saw that very clearly around uh, Brexit. There's a whole literature now that indicates that actually there is a disillusion with uh, democracy as we know it and with uh, elected politicians. But it doesn't mean that people aren't interested in politics at all. In fact, uh, Lord Sumption recently noted that successive surveys of Hansard paint a picture of a society in which there's a strong and growing interest in public affairs, but declining willingness to engage actively in democratic politics. And he illustrates this by the growing resort to direct action, whether that's environmental activism around like insulate Britain that thinks the public can't be relied upon unless they're bullied uh, and their lives disrupted. But also Lord Sumption notes a new form of activism in which campaigners uh, point out that that there's only one legitimate view and that use language um, and um, behaviour to become mandated, such as pronouns and linguistic codes, in order to change things without um, having to persuade people or any democratic uh, consent. And I think that is a, a feature of elite rule from the use of nudge and behavioural psychology to proselytising of authorised opinion by endless workplace training courses. At the heart of all of this is a loss of trust in the public to act and think in the correct way. This project of remoulding and shaping the public is animating and binding the elites project. And I think it's one of the things that keeps them going. It's giving an extra spurt um, as a reaction. And it was given an extra spurt of reaction against a populist revolt such as Brexit when it was perceived that the public voted the wrong way uh, when uh, when it was left to its own devices. I was especially reminded of this when researching the rows at the National Trust in which The Guardian caricatured this as a, quote, crude right-wing backlash against social justice movements plus a post-Brexit push for patriotic history. Um, Anyway, um, as I say, The Guardian uh, made it very clear That what's going on in the National Trust at the moment, they say, is exactly the same as with Brexit. Basically, it's the same kind of uh, fault lines and that they are the guardians of of ensuring that we don't go down the road of Brexit. Okay, one last thought, because I'm being rushed. I wanted to um, just make a self-conscious thought because uh, I I haven't uh, had time to finish. I am now in the House of Lords. Uh, the heart of the establishment. So I thought I ought to at least note that I'm part of an arcane institution associated with the elite and the establishment. The House of Lords is full of pomp and glory. There are 92 hereditary peers, aristocrats, bishops, law lords, uh, political appointees of all uh, stripes, and even crossbenchers who act with a tone of superiority. And you'd think in a way that the House of Lords represented the elite. I'm called Milady and a baroness, Surely that's real power, unelected, undemocratic, and surely it should be abolished. And as everyone from Andrew Neil to Brendan O'Neill is saying so, I tend to agree with them. But I wanted to just remind you that last year, something peculiar happened in the House of Lords, which was instituted a compulsory training course called Valuing Others, run by an external consultancy in which we were all forced to go on a course on sexual harassment in which the words diversity and inclusion appeared regularly. 60 peers decided not to attend, including uh, Baroness Betty Boothroyd, the first female Speaker of the Commons, and they were investigated by Parliament's ethics watchdog and sanctioned. The Commissioner, uh, um, Lucy Scott Moncrief, said there was no excuses for non-attendance because she said it was a requirement of the Code of Conduct for all members to have done the training session by April the 1st. I remember talking to all of the Lords that disagreed with this decision, and they basically said, listen we might be lords of the land but actually we've got nothing that we can do about this we've got no power at all all the power is in the hands of state functionaries and the officials and to a certain extent they describe something that's very true is the house of lords isn't where power lies at all it's actually with those people behind the scenes pulling the strings
0: You've been listening to a lecture by Claire Fox, entitled The Stonewall Phenomenon, Takeover of the Institutions. We'll return soon with the next podcast in this series, which will feature Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent at The Times, who will explore the shifting character of the global elite. In the meantime, if you could give us a financial contribution to support the work of the BOI charity and help us to continue put on similar events that explore historical and contemporary intellectual trends and more broadly the world of ideas, then please head to our website at theboi.co.uk forward slash donate where you can find details of how to make a donation. Thanks, and we'll be back soon.